This podcast contains coarse language, dark humor, descriptions of violence, and controversial opinions. Listener discretion is advised. We're still stuck on the East Coast. This time, we're visiting a state that I know virtually nothing about. The only thing I can tell you about Maryland is that Baltimore is a crime-filled cesspool, and I will never set foot anywhere near there. Oddly enough, the first U.S. post office was inaugurated in Baltimore. The first telegraph line in the world went from Baltimore to Washington. And the last surviving Civil War ship docked in Baltimore. So I guess it wasn't always a gross place. Time has a way of destroying things, though, and today's episode will be a great example of that. Most, if not all, of today's cases took place in the county of Baltimore, and I didn't do that on purpose, it's just the way Maryland's cookie crumbled. Their history with the death penalty goes all the way back to June 20th, 1638. The first person executed here was a white dude named Thomas Smith. He was hung for piracy. That's a new one. Believe it or not, that crime appears a handful of times in the list of executions. Fast forward a bit to the year 1864, and a soldier named George MacDonald was shot to death for desertion. That's another new one. Maryland abolished the death penalty in 2013, and if you listened to last week's episode, you'll remember Stephen Oaken was executed here in 2004. He was the second to last person to be put down in Maryland. I have a lot of stories to tell you today. I'll try to keep these ones in the current era, as I need a break from colonial times. I don't know what to have you guys bring on our trip today. Some body armor probably wouldn't hurt though. We're headed to the old line state. Crimes against the vulnerable are, to most people, among the most heinous acts a person can commit. On this podcast, I've talked about monsters who have beaten old ladies to death for money or sex. I've told a handful of stories about people slaughtering children for revenge or misguided salvation. Today, I'm going to start things off with a case that, well, under normal crime circumstances, wouldn't seem as bad. Robbery happens. Usually it's committed by drug addicts who need a fix, or those who are too lazy to find real employment. But once in a while, it's done by someone so cold and inhuman that it makes the crackhead in front of a 7-Eleven seem tame. This first case is going to make you sick, without a doubt. John Stephen and Patty Thanos were a couple living in Dundalk, Maryland in the late 1940s. Despite Stephen being a mentally ill World War II veteran who was known for being abusive and drugging his wife, they brought a baby boy named John Frederick into the world on March 28, 1949. Stephen would go on to take his anger out on his son when the boy got older. Can't say I'm surprised at all. John Frederick Thanos ended up being expelled from school and spent many years in and out of prison for numerous different crimes. One of these crimes was the rape of a woman in Rosedale, Maryland in 1969. Thanos didn't get away with this, thankfully. He was found guilty and sentenced to 21 years in prison. If you assumed he accepted his fate with dignity, you're wrong. 
Thanos threatened the judge at his trial and also tried to break out of prison in 1971. He was initially successful, but they caught up to him very quickly. He was released from prison in April of 1986, but returned one month later after he robbed a convenience store with a gun. This landed him an additional eight years. We just did an episode on repeat offenders. So before I go on, any guesses as to what the state of Maryland did with this obviously violent man? I'll give you a hint, they done fucked up. They intended to keep him locked up for as long as they could, but a prison official who was either drunk or high or just plain fucking stupid accidentally let him out early. I can't find exactly what happened in this situation, but it's safe to say that this person should have been fired. And he was. Thanos went from prison to working as a bricklayer and then as a chicken processor. Hell of a resume this guy has. But prison didn't rehabilitate him, as I'm sure everyone had hoped it would. In 1990, he accepted a ride from a woman who he exposed himself to. This woman made the very smart decision to press charges. Thanos freaked out, though. He was on parole and feared going back to prison. You'd think people on parole would be more careful if they wanted to stay out, but I don't know. During a videotaped confession to his later crimes, Thanos would say that he chose to embark on a crime spree because he was worried his parole was going to be revoked. Yeah, let that process for a second. This dude was worried about his crimes catching up to him, so he went out and committed worse crimes. Makes perfect sense. August 29, 1990 was his last day at his job. He quit and purchased a 22 caliber rifle. This apparently wasn't good enough, as he decided to saw off the barrel so it would fit inside a doctor's bag that he carried around with him. The same night he bought the gun, he robbed a cab driver and forced the man to get into the trunk of his own car. Despite the threats made against the driver, he walked away with his life. Unfortunately, this was only the beginning. Thanos would embark on a violent crime spree and leave a trail of bodies behind him. Two days after this first incident, Thanos was hitchhiking and was picked up by 18-year-old Greg Taylor. Thanos held him at gunpoint and forced him to drive to a wooded area along a logging road. The intent was to tie Greg to a tree, but things didn't go according to plan. They rarely do. Greg refused to comply, so Thanos laid him down and shot him in the head three times before stealing his car. Thanos also made it a point to alter his own appearance to make himself look more like Greg. This kid was just 18, had his whole life ahead of him, and he was murdered by a middle-aged man simply because he had something that the older man didn't. Just one day later, on September 1st, Thanos made his way to a gas station and traded a watch his father had given him in exchange for $20 and some gas. A deal was struck with 16-year-old Billy Weinbrenner, who I'm assuming worked at the gas station, where Thanos could come back and get the watch from him in exchange for $60. I guess 90s gas stations in Maryland were also pawn shops? Either way, Thanos robbed a convenience store the next day and managed to get $96. Before leaving, he shot the clerk in the head, 
but this person somehow managed to survive. On September 3rd, Thanos went back to the gas station Billy worked at. He encountered the young man as well as Billy's 14-year-old girlfriend, Melody Pistorio. Thanos wanted his watch back. Billy didn't have it on him, as he'd given it to Melody, and she'd left it at home in her jewelry box. This pissed Thanos off, so he pulled a gun on the two teenagers and robbed the store. But this wasn't enough. In one final act of unnecessary carnage, Thanos shot each of the teenagers in the head, twice. The very next day, on September 4th, a man resembling the description of someone wanted for armed robbery was seen driving through North Salisbury. The police pulled him over, and he actually stopped for them. As the officers approached the car, the driver began shooting at them. Without hesitation, they returned fire. No one was hit during the shootout, and Thanos drove away from the scene. He abandoned his car near some woods and made his way to a nearby highway on foot. Here, he flagged down a passing car and forced his way inside. The driver of this car was held hostage by Thanos, who demanded to be driven out of state. Probably out of fear, the driver complied and ended up making it out alive. After arriving in Delaware, police caught up to Thanos once again. They followed him into a parking lot and surrounded the car he was in. At this point, the hostage got out and ran off. Thanos started shooting at the cops again because apparently this man does not learn from his mistakes. They returned fire on him and he eventually surrendered after he emptied his gun. No one was injured in this altercation, but several vehicles were damaged by bullets. On September 5th, Thanos was handed over to the police in Maryland. At his sentencing hearing, holy shit, you're gonna want to stick him with the needle yourself. Thanos taunted the victim's families. The quote from him that made me decide to cover this case is so cold and demented that I'm going to have a hard time reading it. In reference to Billy and Melody, you know, the two teenagers that he shot in the head because they didn't have his watch on hand when he randomly came back for it. Thanos said, Their cries bring laughter from the darkest caverns of my soul. I don't believe I could satisfy my thirst yet in this matter unless I was to be able to dig these brats' bones up out of their graves right now and beat them into powder and urinate on them and then stir it into a murky yellowish elixir and serve it up to their loved ones. I apologize for that horrible run-on sentence, but seriously fuck this guy. His attorney later said of him, what he did was reprehensible, that's true. The other thing is, he is extremely damaged. He is an extremely damaged human being. And really, in our society, we should not kill sick people. He is a really sick person. I get that this defense attorney had to fight for his client, but, uh, no. Thanos wasn't sick in the mental illness kind of way. He was cold, demented, heartless. He shot three innocent young people to death for no legitimate reason. He deserved death. John Frederick Thanos was executed by lethal injection on May 17, 1994. At the time, the only method of execution available in Maryland was the gas chamber. 
Another prisoner's lawyer came to Thanos with a proposal that his execution be filmed to show how cruel and unusual an execution by gas chamber actually is. Thanos agreed to this, but lethal injection became a thing in January of 1994, and the gas chamber was never used again. Thanos waived all of his appeals and refused to fight his death sentence. Perhaps in the end, he accepted that what he'd done was deserving of the ultimate punishment. Or maybe he just gave up. Either way, he got what he deserved. The only thing I can find that resembles a last meal was the coffee he drank in the cell the day before he was executed. His last word was, adios. Robbery seems to be a theme in Maryland, before Stephen Oaken, who you'll remember from last week's episode, was executed. A man by the name of Tyrone Gilliam met his end at the hands of the state. Something about this one stuck with me. I think it was the sheer brutality of how his victim was killed, and how little human life means to some people. On the evening of December 2nd, 1988, Gilliam and a couple of his friends were drinking and doing drugs, which in itself isn't really that big of a deal. Something I've never understood is how people can get fucked up and then decide to go rain a bunch of chaos down on the world. I've done my share of drugs, and drank way more than my share of alcohol in my life. All I ever wanted to do was eat, fuck, and pass out. Not one time did I think I should go carjack someone and murder them when they don't give me enough money. But this did happen in the 80s, so I guess I shouldn't be too surprised. Gilliam and his friends spotted 21-year-old Christine Dorfler in a parking lot on that December night. They approached her and demanded money. When they realized she only had $3 on her, they forced her to go to an ATM to get more. At some point during the trip to the ATM, they changed their minds and drove out to a secluded area instead. Gilliam placed a sawed-off shotgun to the back of Christine's head and shot her for literally no fucking reason. This woman was just 21 when she was executed by a stranger. All they got from her was $3. A human life to these thugs was worth $3. What the actual fuck? Gilliam and his friends were arrested three days after Christine's murder for another crime. I guess that $3 wasn't enough to satisfy their financial needs because they attempted to rob a convenience store after Christine was killed. The cops found the gun used to kill her inside Gilliam's car, and one of the friends who had witnessed the murder pointed the finger at Gilliam, who ended up confessing. In some cases, a trial by jury is a better option. More eyes on your case means more chances that someone will take your side and spare you from the death penalty, or whatever other horrible sentence you're looking at. Gilliam didn't go this route. He wanted a trial by judge. In some cases, that might be the best way to go, as a judge is supposed to base their decision on nothing but facts and evidence. In my experience, that is definitely not how judges work must be a Utah thing. Judge John Fader of Baltimore County found Gilliam guilty of first-degree murder, robbery with a dangerous weapon, 
use of a handgun in the commission of a felony, and kidnapping. On Halloween of 1989, Gilliam was sentenced to death. One of his co-defendants was also convicted of this crime, but walked away with a life sentence. The other one took a plea deal and testified against Gilliam in exchange for life with the possibility of parole. I decided to look because I was curious, and I can't find Tony Drummond in Maryland's system despite him getting life without parole. I was able to find his brother Kelvin Drummond, who got life with parole. So I'm not sure exactly what the fuck is going on there. Judge Fader, who sentenced Gilliam to die, was also the one who signed his death warrant in the end. Tyrone Delano Gilliam Jr. was executed by lethal injection on November 16, 1998. He had tried many times to appeal his sentence, but was unsuccessful. None of Christine's family attended the execution, and Gilliam's family was prohibited from being there. Not once did this monster apologize for what he'd done to Christine. Despite this, many anti-death penalty organizations fought for his life. In the end, Gilliam turned to religion, as condemned men often do. Gilliam wasn't given anything special for his last meal, and his last words were, Allah, forgive them for what they do. Before Furman versus Georgia came and wrecked our country's ideas of punishment for heinous acts, Maryland was one of the handful of states who used the gas chamber for executions. Four men died this way in the late 50s and early 60s, all of them for murder, obviously, with three of those also having rape charges and three of them with robbery charges. Finding details on these crimes is proving to be pretty difficult, but I was able to get the story of one of them. I've talked a bit about gas chamber executions, mostly in my Rumble videos, which you should go watch if you haven't yet. I cover death penalty news, and I also did an update to the Louisiana episode. Before knowing much about the gas chamber, I assumed it was a more humane method than things like electrocution and modern-day lethal injections. Research has shown me that I may have been incorrect in that opinion. Leonard Shockley grew up in an unincorporated Delaware community called Omar with his parents and a handful of siblings. Born in the early 1940s, Shockley moved to Omar from a different rural community in Box Iron, Maryland. Of his siblings, he was closest to his older brother Harold, who had done time in prison for larceny. The younger Shockley brother was unemployed and had stopped going to school by January of 1958, when the pair would make a life-changing decision. On the morning of January 16, 1958, Shockley was asked to take his sister to a friend's house and drop her off. So he, his brother Harold, and their little sister all piled into the car after Shockley had consumed almost a pint of wine. Their sister was dropped off and the brothers decided to commit a robbery. According to Shockley, he had money and had no real reason to commit this robbery. It was an impulsive decision that would shake his entire world up. The Shockley brothers drove to a store in Box Iron that was owned by 39-year-old Sarah Hearn, 
At around 1 p.m., they arrived, and Harold waited in the car as Leonard stashed a knife in his waistband and went inside. Sarah came out to see what Leonard needed and was met with a punch to the face. This was followed by several stabs to her chest and back. He finished her off by slashing her throat. While Leonard was brutally attacking Sarah, Harold came inside the store and tried to open the cash register. Unfortunately for them, it was jammed. They were unable to get any money out and drove away from this bloody scene empty-handed. Sarah, a mother of three and a business owner, was brutally slaughtered in her store for literally no reason. Even if the brothers had been able to get money out of the register, they admitted they didn't need it. This crime was senseless. Thankfully, a witness to this crime saw what was going on and went to Sarah's neighbor's house to get help. Clarence Bishop had seen the Shockley's car outside the store and heard a disturbance inside. He and the neighbor called police and then went back to the store to check on Sarah. Somehow, this brave woman had made it back to her house and managed to get inside before collapsing from her injuries in front of her stepfather. She passed away before the ambulance could arrive. The Shockley brothers managed to stay on the run for a whole eight hours before being apprehended at their house in Delaware. Neither of them did anything to clean up, and Sarah's blood was found on both of them as well as in their car. After being taken to the police station and separated, both of them confessed. In Leonard's statement, he said that he and Harold had both attacked Sarah, but that he had stabbed her and cut her throat. Harold's confession varied slightly, and he claimed that he had stayed in the car until he heard a scuffle inside the store. He went inside to see what was going on and said he had to pull Leonard off of Sarah so they could leave. The pair tried to get rid of some bloody clothes before they went home, but this was done in vain as they were found with blood all over them. After confessing, the brothers were transferred to Maryland to await trial. After a change of venue and mental evaluations, Leonard and Harold Shockley went to trial separately. They both waived their right to a jury trial and instead opted for a trial by a panel of three judges. That's a theme in this episode, apparently. Lots of themes in this one. Kinda weird. Each trial lasted just one day. Leonard was convicted of first-degree murder and robbery on April 7, 1958. Harold was convicted of aiding and abetting Leonard in the murder and robbery and given a life sentence. I'm going to cut back in here and inform you that Leonard Shockley was just 16 at the time of the murder. I know in modern times giving a minor a death sentence is completely out of the question, but it wasn't back in the 50s. A year and one day after the murder, the Court of Appeals upheld Leonard's death sentence. Harold Edward Shockley was eventually released from prison despite being given a life sentence. If you believe his own account of what happened, this is perfectly justified, and I agree with how it played out. Though he agreed to a robbery, I'm sure he had no intention of killing anyone. If he did, he wouldn't have stayed in the car. I did a little digging and was able to find a newspaper article from 2001 when Harold passed away at home. I hope he made something of himself after the murder and learned from his mistakes. Leonard Melvin Shockley was executed by gas chamber on April 10, 1959. 
He was just 17 years old. Gas chamber executions are interesting, to say the least. I talked about them a bit in the Arizona episode an eternity ago. The condemned person is strapped into a chair in a sealed room. A hydrogen cyanide pill is dropped into a vat of sulfuric acid, and the gas resulting from this is what kills the prisoner. Shockley died after just one minute in the gas chamber. He was the youngest person to be executed in Maryland, and the last juvenile to be executed in the U.S. I am unfortunately unable to find anything on his last words or last meal. So far this episode, I haven't been able to give you a real last meal. But don't worry, I do have one coming. They are scarce in Maryland, it seems, but I did manage to find one. This next case is the last execution in this episode, and also the last one carried out by the state of Maryland. It's not unlike the other cases here. It's another robbery turned murder. Researching this episode confirmed a lot of suspicions I had about this state. I did the math on it, and from the year 1638 all the way to 2005, 314 people were executed in Maryland. Approximately 211 of those people, or 67%, were black. I can't say for sure, but this seems like one of those states that was handing out the death penalty more frequently to those of a darker skin tone. I thought that kind of shit was a southern thing. Maryland is a blue state. They've had a few Republican governors, but the number of Democrats who have been in charge of it is way higher. Kinda makes you think, doesn't it? I know, I'm a biased libertarian just talking shit on Democrats, but the statistics don't lie. Jane Tyson was a mother of three and a grandmother of six. She loved kids and was employed as a teacher's aide at an elementary school. On top of that, Jane was an active member in her church and was taking a class to become a Catholic. Didn't know you could take classes to change religions, but that's pretty neat, I guess. On June 6, 1991, she took two of her grandchildren to the Westview Mall near Baltimore. What did I tell you about this city? Did you not believe me? Six-year-old Adam and four-year-old Carly were leaving with their grandma when they were forced to witness something that no person should ever have to see. Rough childhoods often end with a life of crime. Wesley Baker was born to a mother who had been raped as a 12 or 13-year-old. No one is capable of raising a child at that age. I struggle at 18 to figure out how to be a mom. Pretty sure I wasn't even comfortable with motherhood until I was about 24. I have to blame Baker's mom a bit for what happened to her son, though. She was just a child herself when she was forced to bring a baby into the world. Probably should have put him up for adoption, but instead she chose to raise him. And she abused him. The boy was often beaten with belts and electrical cords. Baker was left to run the streets from the age of eight and wound up getting into drugs and alcohol as a teenager. He spent a year in the juvenile justice system before he was tried and convicted as an adult for stealing a car when he was 16. They gave him three years in prison for this. The next 16 years of his life were spent in and out of prison for crimes like armed robbery and car theft. 
These crimes, while shitty for the victims, are a far cry from what Baker would go on to do in 1991. As Jane Tyson was leaving the mall with her grandkids, Baker approached her with a gun. As he came up to the window, Jane noticed he had a firearm. Little Adam, just six years old, recalled his grandma screaming no before being shot in the head. Baker grabbed her purse, which had a whopping $10 in cash, and jumped into the blue Chevy Blazer driven by his friend. What the fuck is up with this state? Baker's lawyers didn't have much in the way of a defense, aside from the fact that the gun found in the blazer didn't have any fingerprints on it. There were fingerprints on Jane's car window, though. Those were matched to Baker. His friend Gregory Lawrence was the one driving the getaway car. After the shooting, the men had fled the scene but were followed by a witness who managed to get the license plate number. This witness gave the information to the police, who located the blazer shortly after the incident and chased after it. The car came to a sudden stop and Baker fled on foot. Lawrence was arrested without incident. Baker was found a while later and arrested, still having bloodstains on one of his legs. Jane's purse and wallet were found along the path that Baker took to flee. Gregory Lawrence was convicted of first-degree murder, robbery, and gun charges, and sentenced to life without parole plus 33 years. Maryland law at the time stated that only the defendant convicted as the actual murderer could be given a death sentence, so Lawrence walked away with his life. I think that's fair. He didn't kill Jane, he just wanted her money. Still fucked up, but rotting in a cage for the rest of his natural life seems like enough in this case. Wesley Baker was convicted of first-degree murder, robbery, and gun charges, the same as his accomplice, but because he had pulled the trigger and physically taken Jane's purse, he was given two terms of 20 years, plus a death sentence. Baker's lawyers spent the next decade appealing on whatever grounds they could pull out of their asses. One issue they brought up was that the sentencing judge didn't hear what could have been considered mitigating evidence. The fact that Baker had been sexually abused as a child and suffered a drug overdose at the age of 12. Baker himself was the one to keep this out of court as he didn't want his mother to suffer any ridicule for what she'd done to him. The attorneys went so far as to cite a 2003 University of Maryland study that showed the death penalty is more likely to be applied in crimes where the victim is white and the perpetrator is black. This study also found that prosecutors in Baltimore County were more likely to seek the death penalty than in other counties. Crime-filled cesspool, I'm telling ya. Seeking the death penalty is a reaction to the horrible things that happen here. The Court of Appeals heard this case in 2005, but did not rule on the legal merits of it. Baltimore Cardinal William H. Keeler visited Baker on death row a week before his scheduled execution, and used this to ask then-Governor Robert Ehrlich Jr. for clemency. He and two other Cardinals wrote and signed a letter to the governor asking that Baker's sentence be commuted to life without parole. The governor responded with a short statement. I appreciate the sincerity and thoughtfulness of the arguments presented to me on Mr. Baker's behalf. 
After a thorough review of the request for clemency, the facts pertinent to this petition, and the judicial opinions regarding this case, I decline to intervene. Richard J. Dowling, the executive director of the Maryland Catholic Conference, later told reporters that he disagreed with the governor's decision. We'll just have to keep working toward the day when death is not viewed as the antidote to death, when mercy is the more appropriate, more Christian response to violent crime. Wesley Eugene Baker was executed by lethal injection on December 4, 2005. Many religious leaders and opponents of the death penalty protested his execution. Jesus didn't die for the righteous man, he died for sinners. I don't know a whole lot about Christianity as I don't believe in it, but what I can say is that Jesus probably wasn't thinking about strangers shooting old ladies in the head for $10 when he was up on the cross. Baker made the decision to execute an innocent woman in front of her young grandchildren. God gave him free will to make that choice, and he had to accept the consequences. If we as a society were to turn the other cheek in situations like this one, our world would be overrun with monsters. Some people need to be put down. Baker didn't have any last words. His last meal was breaded fish, pasta marinara, green beans, bread, orange fruit punch, and milk. I've kept this entire episode in the modern era, and our last case is even more current day than the one before it. Maryland's crimes seem to mostly just be robberies that turn into murders. This last one I have for you today is a bit different. Sorry I haven't been able to find a lot of brutal sex crimes or serial killers in Maryland. I'm sure I'll be able to find something terrible like that next week. On October 4th, 2020, police responded to a shooting in Columbia, Maryland. Not DC. Though it's technically a part of Maryland, it's an entirely different thing. This is just a city in Maryland. Juan Ross was a man who had been arrested on drug and weapons charges in September of 2020. He'd been interviewed and then released on bail. He was found shot to death a month later. Anyone else getting Iowa meth vibes from this one? Because I sure am. It turns out that Juan's murder was bought and paid for by a 28-year-old man named Jay Black. I'm assuming it had something to do with Jay Black, assuming Juan was a snitch. How else would he have gotten let out on bail? Jay Black enlisted his friend Glock to take Juan out and gave him a gun on September 12th. But on October 3rd, Glock still hadn't done the deed. So Jay Black went to another man named Sun Sun to commit the murder instead. That same day, Sun Sun texted Glock with the address of where Juan could be found. All three men drove to a nearby drugstore where Sun Sun got out of the car. The others left the area but came back a short time later. Jay Black and Glock located Juan and shot him multiple times before driving away. Glock and Sun Sun were arrested in November after a relatively short investigation. Initially, the men denied knowing Jay Black, but cell phone records and interviews proved otherwise. 
Sunsun had texted Jay Black after Juan was murdered and said he had something important he needed to discuss. Jay Black told him to FaceTime him. On October 7th, 2020, Sun texted Jay Black, It's going to be hot as shit out here. Jay Black replied, It already is, bro. A search warrant was executed on November 20th, 2020 at Sun Sun's house. Police recovered a 45 caliber handgun and some ammunition under his mattress. A blue backpack with nearly $2,200 in cash was found under the bed, and his phone was found next to the bed. Inside this phone were many pictures of Sun Sun, Jay Black, and Glock together. Though he had denied knowing them, Sun Sun later admitted that they were the other two involved in the murder. This led to the arrest of Glock and Jay Black. This is a federal case. I have to assume that's because it involved the murder of an informant. I can't find anything supporting the claim that Juan was working with the cops, but the information that is available has led me to that conclusion. This was a case of Jay Black either hating snitches so much that he was willing to kill one, or being caught up in drugs and willing to murder someone to cover his own ass. I'm not 100% sure what happened here. All I know is another man was shot to death in Baltimore for no good reason. I'm sure that's probably a daily occurrence. You know, I complain a lot about California and how their residents come to Utah and drive really shitty, but the East Coast is kind of a shithole too. Large concentrations of people tend to turn cities into hotspots for crime. The letter next to the governor's name might be coincidental, but I can say without a doubt that places with high populations fucking suck. It's why I avoid Salt Lake and why I only travel to big cities in other states when Rammstein comes to the US. If this was Burger King and I could have it my way, I'd have a cabin in the woods in the north and the nearest city would be two hours away. But until I can achieve that dream, I'll just stay strapped so I don't get clapped. Jay Black, known officially as Jordan LaRose, pled guilty to the use and discharge of a firearm during a crime of violence, resulting in death. As of the time of writing, he hasn't been sentenced yet, but is looking at no more than 40 years if the court accepts his guilty plea. Glock, known officially as DeQuante Thomas, was convicted of Juan's murder and given 35 years. Sun Sun, known officially as Tyreek Braxton, pled guilty to discharging a firearm during a crime of violence that resulted in death. That's a hell of a lot of words for murder. By the time this comes out, he will have been sentenced. He's looking at 20 to 25 years in federal prison. Before I go, I have one last case to tell you about. It's a happier ending than you're probably expecting. Maryland is home to the first DNA exoneration. Kirk Bloodsworth was sentenced to death for the rape and murder of nine-year-old Don Hamilton in 1984. Because of prosecutorial misconduct, he was given a new trial. This resulted in a second wrongful conviction. The 90s was a gross decade, but it did bring us new technology. DNA testing became more helpful in murder cases and ended up being used to exonerate Kurt. 
He was excluded as being Don's killer in 1993, and the DNA was matched to another man named Kimberly Shea Ruffner, who was serving time for a similar crime committed just weeks after Kirk was arrested. Kirk was released and received an apology from the prosecutors in his case. Ruffner is now serving life in prison for Don's murder. This episode bothered me a lot, perhaps even more than some of the ones where I've talked about violent rapes and prolonged torture. I think that's because this episode showcased how little some people value human life. Murdering a grandma in front of two little kids for $10. Shooting someone in the head with a shotgun for $3. Stabbing a store clerk to death for no money because they're too stupid and can't figure out how to open a jammed cash register. Some people truly don't deserve the oxygen they breathe. Though I hate the government with every fiber of my being, I will admit that once in a while, they get it right. The lesson you can take from this episode isn't about racial injustice or forgiving those who commit heinous acts. It's a simple one. Human lives matter more than your finances. Don't murder the innocent because you need money. Get a fucking job. No child should have to watch their grandma be shot in the head over $10. Maryland may be a beautiful state to some. I'm sure it has some redeeming qualities that help make up for the shadow Baltimore has cast upon it. But I'll never go there. Not even if there's a cabin in the woods. That's it for the old line state. I've had enough. If you enjoyed this episode, show me some love with a like or a rating. Comments and reviews are great too. I read them all. Share this mess on your internet. I know there are a handful of true crime obsessed freak monkeys out there who might enjoy my dumb jokes and political rants. You can get me on Instagram and Twitter at LastMealPod. Rumble is home to my exclusive news content and other random videos, but I'm also available on Odyssey and most podcast apps. Can't figure out Apple Podcasts, though. It won't let me upload my thumbnail image, so if you're fluent in RSS feeds, shoot me a message and help me figure this shit out. I'm sure I'd reach a lot more people if Apple didn't suck. Cursed is the man who dies, but the evil done by him survives. See you next time.